Shalom, welcome to Tanakh Study. This is Alex Israel from Alon Shavut. Excited to be with you again. And we have just finished studying the uh, passage of Migdal Bavel, the Tower of Babel, and the dispersion of civilization. The beginning of chapter 11 describes Migdal Bavel and the dispersion and the uh, diversity of humanity into 70 nations is described in the earlier chapter, chapter 10. So we've just finished with Migdal Vavel. And I'm going to start with by reading a passage from uh, Rabbi Sachs, from his book, The Dignity of Difference. I'm reading from page 52. Bavel, the first global project, is the turning point in the biblical narrative. From then on, God will not attempt a universal order again until the end of days. Babel ends with the division of mankind into a multiplicity of languages, cultures, nations, and civilizations. God's covenant with humanity as a whole has not ceased, but from here on he will focus on one family and eventually one people to be his witnesses and bearers of his covenant, a people in whose history his presence will be particularly transparent. He will ask of them that they will be willing to give up home, birthplace and land, all the familiar certainties, and undertake a journey with God as their only protection. Theirs will be a singular and exemplary fate. What Rabbi Sachs is pointing to is the fact that we are here in chapter 11 in Perakud Aleph of Breshit at a significant turning point in Sefer Breshit. Um, maybe we can argue in the history of mankind. You see, until now, from the beginning of the Torah, we have been telling a universal story. There have been no Jews. All of mankind are meant to be moral, obedient to God. And God has tried to perfect mankind. And here I refer to the Sephorno's beautiful introduction to Sefer Bereshit, where the Sephorno goes through civilization he says first of all uh, God created man in his image in his likeness and he says but what did man do man um, didn't listen to God we're talking about in the garden of Eden and man was exiled from the face of the earth uh, out of the garden the second story was God wanted to continue the universe however mankind insisted on again destroying itself and God had to intervene a second time, and we're talking about the terrible uh, destruction of the flood. And man gives humanity a third chance, um, allowing them to continue in the world, renewing creation. And he says this continued for about 400 years, but then what happens to them? They create this Migdal Bavel, they go against God's will, where God had spoken about Miluet Kol Haaretz, fill the world. Instead of filling the world, they want to concentrate in a single location. We've spoken about the problems with the uh, Migdal Bavel, and God decides that he is going to create this diversity by altering their languages. Uh, it's amazing how language can be so influential in creating entirely different cultures. And suddenly, once again, they spread into... Um, a diversity of cultures. But this is where we meet uh, chapter 11. 
because we're now going to open a segment called Eiletel.shame and we're going to catapult forward with ten generations from Noach to Abraham or more accurately put from shame to Abraham um, where instead of looking at humanity in a horizontal sense and talking about the expansion of humankind we suddenly go generation after generation after generation mentioning a single son in each generation because we're sort of propelling forwards targeting forwards to find a specific person and that person is going to be Avraham Avinu um, and we're going to focus and hone in for the rest of the Torah on the story of the family of Avraham um, Avraham himself and of course the struggle between Yitzchak and Ishmael but eventually the choice of Yitzchak the struggle between Yaakov and Esav and the choice of Yaakov until Yaakov's family is is, is robustly in place and that's where Sefer Bereshit ends in other words the first 10 or 11 chapters of the Torah are universal but from this moment on we shift to a particularistic focus and this already starts here with the ten generations from Noach to Avraham and that's what we're going to read today and as I say um, here it's almost as if God has already made the selection once once we realize that in Migdal Bavel civilization has once again turned against God's intents, God's plans um, suddenly now there seems to be a complete shifting of gears rather than God trying to relate to civilization as a whole he is now going to choose to interact and to interface with a single person, a single family Avraham is going to be told this family is going to become a blessing for the entire world but God's attention is going to be paid to Avraham so this is what we're reading here in chapter 11 the story of how we uh, God hones in God uh, decides to abandon the universal project for the time being he hasn't abandoned the universe or humanity as a whole but he's going to use a different strategy and work through Avraham Avinu so we're going to read through Yudalaf and see how some of the elements of the story are are very telling and um we're going to find ourselves very soon in the landscape of the family of Avraham. Eiletol.shem This is the lineage of Shem. Shem ben me'at shana. Shem was a hundred years old. Vayolet et arpachshad. Shnatayim aharhamabul. So he was a hundred when arpachshad was was born. Two years after the mabul. Vayishem achareholedot arpachshad. He lived uh, for 500 years after the birth of Arpachshad, and uh, so he lived a total of 600 years. He had many other children. Arpachshad He gives birth to Shelach at the age of 35. 403 years he lives after the birth of Shelach, and he dies. Ever is born when Shelach is just 30 years old. Three, 403 years after this, he dies. He has many other children. He's 34 years. 
he gives birth to Peleg. But he over Peleg, shloshim shana shloshim shana four hundred and thirty years vayoled banim ubanot. Vahi Peleg shloshim shana vayoled et ru'u. Peleg was thirty years old when he gave birth to ru'u. Vahi Peleg acharei holidot ru'u teisha shanim umataim shana. He lived two hundred and nine years vayoled banim ubanot and had many other children. Vayichi Ru'u Shtaim Ushloshim Shana Ru'u was 32 years old and gave birth Vayoled et Sarug gave birth to Sarug Vahi Ru'u Achrei Holido et Sarug Sheva Shanim Umatayim Shana 207 years later Vayoled Banim Ovanot after giving birth to many children Sarug died Vahi Sarug Shloshim Shana Vayoled et Nachor Sarug was 30 years old when he gave birth to Nachor Vahi Sarug Achrei Holido et Nachor Matayim Shana Vayoled Banim He lived another 200 years, had many other children, and died. Vayichi Nachor Teisha Ve'esrim Shana Nachor was 29 years old. Vayoled Et Terach He gives birth to Terach. Vayichi Nachor Acharei Holido Et Terach Teisha Tshaesrei Shana Uma'at Shana 119 years Vayoled Banim Uvanot What do we have here? Uh, if we look at these, uh, this formulation, a few things are interesting for us. Shame lives till 600 years, Arpachshad, 438 years, Shelach, 433 years, Ever, 464 years. All the numbers here are, you know, 430 upwards to Shame, who is 600 years. But look, after Peleg, Peleg lives 239 years, Ru'u. 239 years. Sarug, 230 years. And Nahar Amir, 148 years. Notice also that everybody is giving birth to children at the time, uh, uh, sort of something which we can imagine. Ar Pachshad gives, uh, has his first child at the age of 35. Shelach at the age of 30. Aver at the age of 34. Peleg, 30. Um, Ru'u at the age of 32, Surug 30, Nachor has a child at the age of 29. First of all, I want you to, 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 to point out that the years certainly of giving birth are more realistic, but notice how Peleg is the transition point between people living 430 years and more, and now only anything between 148 years and 240 years. The number of years are coming down and Peleg is the transition point between people living 400 years and 200 years. What happened in Peleg's age? I think we've already spoken about it. Ki In his age, in his period, that is when Migdal Bavel happened, that is when the land split apart. The truth is that the Chizkuni has an interesting reading, and he says, what does it mean, Biyamav Niflegah Aretz? For those of you who are looking at that, for that verse, that verse is in chapter 10, verse 25, Perek Yud Pasuk Chavhei, Biyamav Niflegah Aretz, Chizkuni says, no, it doesn't mean that the land divided, it means that the age of man was divided, that man started living for 200 years instead of 400 years. Whichever way we see a significant transition in the history of mankind, 
that man is living shorter and shorter, all the people before the flood living about 900 years, between the flood and Migdal Bavel living 400 years, and after Migdal Bavel living only 200 years. And um, this relates as well to the absence of the word which we found in chapter 5. If you recall the genealogy of chapter 5, uh, we had a similar thing where we had people living a certain age and they have a son, then it gave the rest of their age, and then it gave a summary, and it said Vayamot. Vayamot. And here, that phrase, Vayamot, is absence. And uh, the Sephorno explains very clearly why. He says, With none of these does it say Vayamot. He says there's a very simple reason. Because the first group, from uh, Sheit to Noach, the first group of people who lived before the flood, all perished in the flood, and therefore Vayamot, they perished. However, this group, he says, still remain alive. He says these people, for example, Shem himself, is still alive when Avraham Avinu is alive. Um, all of the rest of the people in, these li in this list still are living during Avraham Avinu's life. There is no watershed, there is no Mabul, there is no uh, annihilation, no apocalypse, and therefore the word Vayamot is absence. In a few minutes we'll see the uh, exception to this rule. So what we're witnessing here is, again, we're charging forward generation after generation. We've found ourselves um, at the birth here of Terach uh, in Pasuk Chafhe. And uh, we're moving forward, but we're also noting that the number of years of man has halved in the time of Peleg, and that things are definitely changing. And now we continue. Vayichi Terach Shivim Shana. Terach lived 70 years, also a slightly anomalous if we've seen everybody else give birth somewhere in their 30s. Vayoledet Avram et Nachor Haran. Suddenly we see three children. Now we've already seen this before. Um, Adam Arishon gave birth to three children. And that's uh, signified a watershed. When we went from Adam to Noach, we also saw that Noach had three children, and that was the end of the list. And it seems like we're getting to the list, end of the list, because once again, here do we see Terach has three sons, just like maybe what we saw even earlier with Lemech having three sons. Whenever you get to the end of the list, it seems like three sons are mentioned. So we have Vayechi Terach Shivim Shana, Terach lived 70 years, and he gave birth to Avram, Nahor, Vetaran. And now we open a whole new chapter. How do I know? Because look, there's a new uh, heading. Pasuk Chazayin. Ve'ele toldot Terach. And this is the lineage of Terach. In other words, Terach represents a new opening. Terach holidet Avram et Nachor ve'etaran. And now we're going to see an extensive focus on Terach's family. So we say, Terach holidet Avram, Nahor, Vet Haran, three brothers, Avram, Nahor, and Haran, Vaharan holidet Lot. We're already told that Lot is going to be a significant person. Vayamat Haran al Terach Aviv. Haran died young. He died during his father's lifetime. Be'eretz Urkastim. In the land of his birth, Urkastim. Vayikach Avraham v'nachor lehem nashim. Avram and Nahor take wives. Shem eshet Avram Sarai. Avram marries somebody called Sarai. V'shem eshet Nahor. Milka bataran avi milka va'avi yiska. 
complicated this sentence. Nachor marries a woman called Milka, who is the daughter of Haran, where Haran was the father of Milka and Yiska. Uh, what, what, what are we seeing here? Very interesting. Three brothers, Avram, Nachor, and Haran. And Haran dies young. What are we going to do with his children? Uh, he has three children, it seems. One is called Milka. One is called Yiska two girls, and a third is the son called Lot. Nahor marries Milka, one of these, one of his niece. She is an orphan girl, and Nahor looks after his niece by marrying her. Likewise, we're going to see that Terach sort of adopts Lot, and in fact, eventually Avram adopts Lot. So we have Avram, the brother of the deceased Haran, adopting Lot. Um, Nahor, another one of the brothers, adopts his niece Milka and marries her. The interesting question is what happens to Yiska, the third daughter? What happens to her? And here we have a fascinating tradition which Rashi brings that Yiska is Sarai. In other words, creating a symmetry between the family. If Haran dies and he leaves three orphans, if uh, Lot hangs out with Avraham, if um, Milka actually marries Nahor, what happened to Yiska? And suddenly the Midrash comes along and says, Yiska is Sarai. Why? Yiska sounds like Nesicha. Uh, sounds like a, a princess. Also Sarah is from the word Sar, also like a princess. Maybe there's a similarity in name. But maybe most convincingly is that when Avram wants to... Um, we recall the story that Avram later finds himself in the land of the Philistines, the land of Abimelech in Grar, and he says about his wife, Sarah, Achotihi. And when he's confronted by Abimelech, one of the things he says, I'm reading from chapter 20, verse 12, Perechav Pasuk Yudbet, he says, She is indeed the daughter of my father. She is already a relative, she was a relative of mine, and I married her. And this uh, forms the basis for the Midrash Chazal, which says that Yiska Zusara. Um, and this is a very, very deep statement. It means that when you have a situation where the family is in trouble, where one of the brothers uh, dies before his time and he leaves orphan children, all of the orphans are somehow adopted by the rest of the families. It seems like um, people didn't just adopt a single girl, even if they were their niece and have uh, single women around their household. Maybe the most uh, caring thing to do was actually to to marry her. Uh, maybe it would be difficult for an orphan girl to be married. Um, and therefore, it seems like, according to this tradition, both Nahor and Avram marry their nieces and Yiskazu Sarah. I'd be remiss when I'm talking about this if I didn't mention the alternative tradition. It is the Ibn Ezra who says that uh, this is certainly not the Pshat, and he really, really objects to this interpretation. And uh, this is what he has to say. He says, The interpretation that Rashi brings that Yiska is Sarah because she has been anointed with Ruach HaKodesh, Derech Derashi, it is a um, midrashic reading, osvara, or a sort of conjecture. 
לא קבלה ואין זה דבר מצווה. This is not a tradition from the rabbis and therefore we do not need to believe it. And it seems like uh, what he's suggesting is that if the text tells us that there is somebody called Sarai and there's somebody is called Iska, then they must be two people. It wouldn't have been difficult for the text to tell us that Avram married Yiska and um, that Yiska is Sarai. But since it says there is a girl called Yiska and Avram married Sarai, then this is not the tradition. And so here we see a classic debate and a sort of division, a divergence of opinion between Rashi, who frequently uses Midrash and is very attached to Midrash, and the Ibn Ezra, who in the narrative sections of Tanakh is much more uh, affiliated with the Pshat, with just what is written in the text. And uh, therefore, in, in Ibn Ezra's reading, um, Yiska is not Sarai. Yiska married somebody completely different. Uh, she married a, a, they found her a nice shiduch, and she got married to somebody else. And Sarai is a is a, a different woman who maybe comes from the wider family pool, as Avram indicates in later in Perachaf. But Yitzka and Sarai are two very different people. Uh, we're going to keep reading uh, to see what happens, and then we're going to reflect a little bit. Vatihi Sarai akara ein lavalad. We need to comment on this in a minute. Sarai was barren, unable, infertile, ein lavalad. Notice how it's pushing it. It says it both in the positive, Sarai akara, and also she has no children in the positive and the negative. This is an important point. And now, vayikach terach et avram beno, vet lot ben haram ben beno, vet Sarai kalato eshed avraham beno. Terach tut avraham his son, lot, the son of haran, in other words, his grandson, and Sarai, his son-in-law, the wife of Avraham, Vayitzu itam Urkastim, they left Urkastim to go to the land of Canaan. Vayavoad Haran, but instead of going to Canaan, they came to a town called Haran, and they lived there. We have so many questions here, they need to be mentioned. Why give us all of this family genealogy? Why is it important for us to know that Sarai is Akara, cannot have children? And what is this journey that Terach takes to go to the land of Canaan and that he only comes to Haran? What is happening here? So let me mention at least two different approaches. One approach is that all this information is simply the backstory. We need to know about Nahor and Nahor marrying Milkar because later this is going to be important information when we find Rivka and when, for example, Yaakov goes back to the land of Haran to seek the family and to marry Rachel and Leah. So we need to know the Mishpacha. We need to know the family. Likewise, Sarah's barrenness is going to be very important for the story. It's going to provide pressure for Avraham. It's going to be the backdrop to the marrying of Hagar. So all of this is a backstory. And though Avraham is from Ur Kastim, as it says later on in the Torah, in chapter 15, we need to understand why the family are actually in living in Haran and where that's where we will later find um, Lavan and we'll later find Rivka and the rest of the family. This is all important uh, information and therefore we'll look at this as informational 
background information. But another understanding wants to see this as, as critically important to the story. Um, Rabbi Svi Gromit, in his recent book, focuses, when he reads this paragraph, on the centrality of family to the line of shame. And we've already spoken about this in our discussion of chapter 10. What do I mean by that? Notice this whole theme that Haran dies and his three orphans are taken in by the family. Notice the way that when Terach travels, it says he takes Avraham, Beno, Avraham his son, Vet Lot, Ben Haran, Ben Beno, and Lot, the son of Haran, who is in fact Ben Beno, his grandchildren, his grandchild, Vet Sarai Kalato, Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and then it adds in, Eshet Avraham Beno, the wife of Avraham his son. This, fa- this is a family for whom family is desperately important. And this responsibility to family is going to play in later with Avram's interesting interrelationships with um, with Lot and also, of course, with Ishmael, his son. It seems to be telling us that family is vital. But I'm going to say something even more here. Avraham, as we can see, is going to be tremendously dedicated to Sarai, even though she cannot provide him with a son. In other words, even though Sarai Akara in Lavalad, she has got no hope of having children, so it seems at this stage. Um, even despite this, Abraham remains with Sarai, dedicated to Sarai, being uh, loyal to her in all situations. This background might also be very, very important for understanding the promise to Abraham which is going to happen at the beginning of Lech Lecha, when he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. How? From whom? I'm married to Sarai. She can't have children. So all of this information is going to uh, be critical um, for giving us an understanding about who Avram is. And it's not just background to the story. This tells us that Avram is desperately committed to family. He is fully committed to his wife. The whole clan has this emphasis on family. A further thing that it might tell us is that the family wander, because of course they are going to Canaan, and we wonder why is Terach going to Canaan? Terach takes Avraham and Lot and Sarai lalechet arts Canaan, but he only stops in Haran. Now, maybe I am going to jump forward into the beginning of Lech Lecha, but if we Look there, we see a very similar pasuk here. Vayikach Avram et Sarai ishto, pasuk hey, Peret Yudbet pasuk hey, chapter 12, verse 5. Avram takes Sarai ishto, vet lot ben achiv, vet koruch hosham asher achashu, vet anevesh asuv haran, vayitzu lalechet artzakanan, they left for artzakanan, vayavau artzakanan. Um, why is Terach going to the land of Canaan? Here there are two schools of thought. One opinion is going to be saying that he is simply going to Canaan because of economic reasons, or maybe because, who knows, there was a famine in Orkastim, and he thought Canaan was a good place, he went there for all sorts of secular reasons. But of course he didn't make it there. He stopped in Haran, another place on the Fertile Crescent, because it seemed like a good place to go. Why travel the extra hundreds of miles to the land of Canaan? In this case we're going to see, because the language is mirrored, 
a direct contrast between Terach, who travels to Canaan for his own prosaic, economic, or other reasons, and Avram, who travels in the name of Hashem. You only make it to Canaan if you follow God's word. And in this regard, there will be a huge difference between Terach, who travels for purely pragmatic reasons, and Avram, who is going to travel to the land of Canaan by following God's word. Our time is up, but next time we're going to open with Lechlacha and try and understand who Avram is and whether there are any clues in this opening narrative that we've discussed today. Thank you very much. See you next week.